All right, guys. Hope you guys are having an awesome day. We got a special guest in the house, former world number four, James Blake, the tournament director of the Miami Open. James, welcome on to the Pure Tennis Podcast, my man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Where are you uh, located right now? Where's where's home. your uh, where being at? Home, home in San Diego. Uh, yeah, been out here for a few years now. Loving it. So when you're out in San Diego, how often are you picking up the sticks? <laughs> Not very often. I hit yesterday actually though. So that was, uh, but I think that might've been the third time this year. Um, there's one kid out here, Hudson Rivera, who's a really good player heading off to Stanford next year. And um, he gets me out on the court because it's fun seeing him get better. He's gotten so much better in the last year, year and a half that it's, uh, that that gets me out on the court and that makes me have a, have a lot of fun out on the court. Stanford's got a lot of talent this year. They got uh, Banerjee. They got um, Nishesh Besar-Veretti uh, yeah. from Indiana. Got to watch him dominate the ITA Fall Nats and won, won the big title there. But, um, yeah, you, do you tune into much college tennis these days? Um, not a ton, but, I mean, I stay a little up to date with Harvard. Um, I just saw the team out here. They were out here for uh, for a break, and they were they played um, San Diego State. Uh, and, the old, and the coach, Andrew Rube, uh, had me go and, and hang with the players. Last year, actually, I know that's another reason I would have gotten out on the court, but it was raining the day I was supposed to go go meet and hit with them. So I just hung out with them and had lunch with them. Um, but so I stay a little bit up to date with how they're doing. You know, now that Hudson will be off to Stanford soon, I'll, I'll definitely keep up to date with them, especially with Goldstein, uh, a good buddy of mine as the coach. So I'll, I'll keep keep tabs on them and how they're doing. But um, I don't I don't um, tune in quite as uh, as often as I used to, to check in the rankings and everything. I got one of my one of my best friends out here is uh, went to Baylor and played tennis there. So he uh, he keeps me up to date on how they're doing and they're having a, a rough season so far. I've heard this year. <laughs> Baylor, you said who Baylor? Baylor. Yeah. Yeah. Baylor just lost a tough one. They, they, no, they're they're got they got good team, but the Big 12 is so damn good. Uh, so if you, if you check the rankings, you'll, you've seen that, I guess, Tennis Point, we were the sponsor of the ITA uh rankings which is pretty cool so that's kept me definitely involved in the college tennis scene and uh i mean i love it i mean i think the energy around college tennis is amazing i would like to see more of that um just the atmosphere and the vibe and just the camaraderie somehow transition itself into the tour life is we've seen it happen in labor cup uh yeah. davis cup holtman cup and like all these other team events i just wonder if there's a way and you, you might have thought about this in the past like how do we keep that energy that college tennis has where like, and there's more of a team aspect of it, even though you're fighting your 1v1 battle on the court uh, in professional tennis. And maybe it's not possible. Yeah, I, I loved college as well. I loved being a part of any team, really. Um, I played high school tennis and college tennis. Got uh, very fortunate to be a part of Hopman Cup teams, Davis Cup teams. Uh, we played uh, World Team Cup in Dusseldorf. And I just loved being part of a team. And you're right, the team atmosphere is incredible. I loved seeing this year at um, the United Cup, how Americans did so well and having the combined mix event. That was a uh, that was a lot of fun, and I just think it's tough to do um, too often because um, you know if you turn a whole season into it, it takes away from that individual aspect of the sport that we've all um, come to know and love. And um, so I, I love the way that they do it, and when it is the opportunity, I mean, really, some of my favorite memories of my entire career are Davis Cup weeks. Um, not even some of the matches, some of the weeks where we're just leading up to it and get to be a part of the team and and feel that kind of college atmosphere with probably a little extra added pressure and um, you know, you got the the best players from from your country playing and, and proud to be uh, representing your country. So 
those are really, really special. And I hope um, the players continue getting that opportunity. And I know Bob's excited to be the the new captain. And th this team, I think, is going to be pretty special. I felt felt really good about our team, uh, with myself, Andy Roddick, and the Bryan brothers together for so many years. And um, we had great other other people around us with Marty Fish, Taylor Dent, Robbie Ginepri. Um, So it, it was something that was always special. And I, I hope more players get that opportunity. No, I think you just said it best. I think in the United Cup, uh, another event I forgot about actually it was amazing. I think showing girls and guys competing for the same team, mm -hmm. it added a different element to it. I mean, yeah. you couldn't – I mean, Big Foe was – I mean, <laughs> his camaraderie he brings to a team. I yeah. mean, you, you know how Big Foe just – he lives for those moments. And uh, I think he gave both the guys and the girl – like, he's the type of player that gives you that that level of belief in yourself. And I think yeah. for a, a, like a girl like Alicia Parks, who's trying to make her way on the women's tour – uh, one of the best servers in the world. And um, I think that was just, I, I got to, we did a commercial shoot with her in Indian Wells. It just seemed like that, that, that moment, those experiences really, she took a lot of, out of that. And I think those type of things, even though it's like, she didn't even, I don't even think she played in the United cup, but yeah. I think just her being around those, that yeah. locker room and uh, you got Madison keys, Pagula, Tiafo, yeah. um, all those guys. I mean, I think that was huge for her. And I think, that's what brings out the best in tennis. I mean, and, and you see like in, in college tennis, like Diana Schrader has had a lot of success on the women's tour. Uh, she goes and plays these college matches, these dual matches, and she's losing. I mean, she lost yeah. to just, she lost to Duke in straight sets last week after she had a good match. I think she took out um, before losing to Bedosa. I think she had an upset. I don't know if it was, it wasn't Sackery. I forget who it was, but it's just like, it goes to show you that the environment, the atmosphere, the energy around college tennis and having teammates push you forward. I mean, it, it matters. Yeah, it's it's it definitely is a great feeling to be a part of that team, and I always felt that way about the practice partners. I got to be a practice partner when I was pretty young, and you get to see the the level of professionalism, um, the level of talent, the level of ability, and then try to kind of match yourself up against them and see how they prepare for big matches. And to get to see that with with guys like Tiafo and Fritz and and the the women like Pagula and Keys. And then also seeing that they're having fun. I mean, Francis is the absolute perfect example of he became so much more professional. It's exactly what we were hoping for when we saw him break on the tour when he was 19 years old or 18 years old. And you want him to keep that um, that youthful personality, that excitement, but still be a little more professional. And he's managed to do that perfectly. He's extremely professional when it comes to putting in the work, doing the uh, doing the things he needs to do off the court. But then he hasn't lost that fun loving, that smile, that goofing around when you can goof around. And I think that's something that for the young players to learn from is really good. And and so all those players that didn't even play, I know Kudla was down there, didn't play. Parks was mm -hmm. down there, didn't yep. play. And um, getting to see that and seeing that top level, because obviously they won the won the event. You know, that's a really high level of tennis they're playing, but also that they can have a lot of fun. They can enjoy their time on the court and then still put in the hard work. So I, I always love that feeling and and um, glad to see it's kind of being passed down and, and everyone can can. I'm that on that bench can learn from it. I thought it was interesting that Tiafo kind of gave credit to talking to guys like LeBron James and Dwayne Wade at the All-Star NBA All-Star break. And just like he got to see, like he said, his parents always told him, you know, you got to work hard. You got to do this every day. And it's got to be consistent work that you put in to get to the top. And he said it didn't hit as hard. But then when you hear from a, one of the greatest of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time and two of the greatest basketball players of all time, it's like it kind of resonates a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's he's always said, you know, he's been an NBA fan forever. And those guys, those are the guys he looks up to. So you, you hear something from them. It definitely definitely hits different than from your parents. I mean, I think all of us at some point um, that were taught by our parents or learned the game from our parents, at some point you hit a you hit an age where you just you don't want to listen quite as much to your parents. You want them to be parents and not coaches. And so he hit that point with his parents. And now you hear it from mentors, you hear it from idols, you hear it from people that you're, you really look up to. Um, and it does make a big difference. And that's what I think he'll, 
that that'll hit him even harder. I think 10 years from now when he's the one that's giving the advice and someone's looking up to him and saying, Hey, I, I watched you make it to the semis of the, uh, the open in 2022. And, and that, you know, that was when I was just coming up. That was when I was just starting and I wanted to know what you were doing and how'd you do that? And how'd you deal with the pressure? How'd you handle this? And, you know, he's going to, he's going to have the, all that kind of life experience to, to go back on. And, great that he's learning from those that went before him. I was lucky enough to learn from the guys like Sampras and Agassi and Todd Martin and Jim Currier. And, um, you know, they were, I know they were extreme, extreme uh, competitors with each other, but all of them in their own, in their own certain way were great at helping the younger generation. So I know Francis will be like that when he gets to that age, because I feel like it's, it's continued. That whole cycle has really continued. And those guys helped us, myself and Andy Roddick and Marty Fish helped the younger guys. Then Isner and Query really kind of um, set the tone for the guys like Jack Sock and that next generation. And they've all helped Francis and Taylor and uh, and those guys. And I think they're just going to keep paying it forward. So you grew up in New York. When was the first your first experience playing tennis? And what what was your like, why did you gravitate towards the sport? Well, I have joked many times with my parents that it was just because they were too cheap to pay for a babysitter and they uh they loved playing tennis with each other they practiced that uh, you know they would hit with each other it was like their kind of fun um you know social atmosphere this our social um, outing was them playing tennis so they'd bring us to at that time the harlem junior tennis program uh which was called the armory um and we'd go there and we'd be kind of running around the you know the outside of the courts a little bit and then at the end they'd toss us a few balls me and my brother and um, we liked it. We wanted to be like our parents. And then, um, I mean, I was probably only three, four or five years old and just hitting the ball and wanting to have fun and probably trying to swing as hard as I could until I learned to actually keep it in the court, um, which some say I probably still never learned, but, um, uh, I, I definitely did my best and and then just had fun. And my dad was definitely someone that really, really preached just like, t- uh, Francis parents, hard work, just work harder than the next guy and you'll, you'll be successful. And, um, so I learned that there, actually, I used to go to the clinics on, on the weekends and that was all you would ever preach is just work harder. We get in there, we're doing our calisthenics, we're doing our jumping jacks, we're doing our jumping rope, we're running laps, we're doing everything. And, um, so I just learned it there and, and fell in love. I mean, I, I always loved the the individual aspect of a sport. I think, one of the best things that ever happened to me was having a terrible baseball team when I was about 12 years old or 13 years <laughs> old. And man, I hated losing every day. Every time we go out there, it didn't matter what I did. I felt like we were going to keep losing. I, I'm tired of this. I want to do it all on my own. Oh my gosh. So when was your, like, what's your first memory of holding a racket? Like what racket did you first have? Do you remember like the first kind of moments that yes, you I do first racket I ever had was a Yonix R7. That was my mom's. Uh, so I would use that. I never used a junior racket and it was way too heavy. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those. Those are the old, old uh, Yonixes that were just way too heavy. And I could barely like pick it up and just kind of swinging it probably halfway along the ground. And um and so that was that was the first one i ever used i think the first racket i ever actually got that was mine that wasn't i wasn't just hitting with my mom's was a pro kenex i think it was called the white ace the white one and that was only because i wanted a i wanted a white racket i thought those looked really cool at the time um and so that was that was my first one Uh, so is that what motivated you to hit the gym when you couldn't swing your racket over your shoulder you started (laughs) Working on that physical fitness. Yeah, when I was four years old, I knew I needed to get a little stronger. <laughs> no, I just, uh, yeah, I loved it right from the start. Just hitting balls anywhere. And my mom, um, you know, when she would play tennis or whatever, if she was playing with a friend or my dad was playing with a friend, they'd leave me, a, you know, they'd give me a, anything. They said I would just grab a stick and just pick up rocks, pick up anything. I just wanted to hit. You know, I'd always be hitting something. And if I did happen to have an extra racket or something, I'd be hitting that against the wall. I'd be doing whatever just to um just to pick anything up and swing a racket when was the first time where you were like 
I mean, you seemed like you picked it up and loved it right away, but was there a time in your early childhood or your, your uh, teenage years where you were like, yeah, I want to pursue this to the next level. I want this to kind of, I mean, you ended up, academics were obviously a big part of what you were yeah. doing as well. I mean, um, yeah. But like, how did you kind of juggle both of those? And was there a time where you were like, you know, I'm going to focus on my academics, but my long-term vision is I want to be a professional tennis player. Yeah, it's funny. It kind of like went in waves a little bit because when I was 10, 11 years old or so, I was, you know, that's when I would watch some tennis and I'd go to the open with my dad and, oh man, I, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. But they were so, so good there that I, it, it was kind of like just a dream. Like, that's amazing. Like these guys are like robots. They're so good. So um, that's so far away, but I still thought like, you know what? They're still I, that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just felt that way. But if I was if I like 10, 11 years old, I was like, you know what? I think I can do it. And then reality set in because I was little. So I was getting beat up in the 14s, even into the 16s a little bit until I finally grew. And so at that time when I was barely making nationals and in my in my dreamer head, I, oh, I'm going to be a pro someday. I kind of reality set in. I said, all right, you know what? Let's let's reshift. Let, let's shift our goals and say, okay, I want to do my best and I, maybe I can get a college scholarship. Maybe I can play play D1 college and be really good there. And that's my goal. Then I started getting better. And I finally grew. I grew about, I grew about nine inches in one year. And so once that wow. happened and I was playing, I was trying to play aggressive at five foot three and it wasn't working too well for some reason. So uh, when I finally grew and wins just started happening, I started, kept winning and winning and winning. And um, when that happened, it actually didn't, it didn't really set in because I didn't realize how much better I'd gotten in about a year or two. Um, when I got to, I think I got to number one in the country in the juniors. Um, and then I got to college and it hit, it honestly didn't hit me at all. Even in juniors, when there were agents around me at the junior us open and talking to me about turning pro. And I was just laughing at getting these card business cards saying, I, I mean, I'm, I can't beat my brother. I can't beat any, you know, I can't beat any of these college guys. I've just watched a bunch of college guys and there's no way I'm as good as these guys. So I don't know why these guys think I'm going to be any good, but fast forward wow. to college, I, I get to college and I, I honestly, I got to college with the, the intention that I thought I was going to play number four on the team. I, I thought, cause I'd, I'd watched my brother. I went to college at Harvard where my brother was already a senior and I'd gone up and watched them practice all the time. And I thought my brother was way better than me. And this guy, Phil saying, I thought was better than me. And, um, this guy couldn't imagine. I thought these guys were all better than me because I've watched them play. I watched how good they are, man. These guys are bigger, stronger, faster than me. And um, I get there and everyone on the team is talking about, is, is James going to play number one or number two? Am I going to play one ahead of my brother or is he going to play ahead of me? And I thought they were crazy. And then the first rankings came out and I thought I was going to play and we hadn't played any dual matches or anything. And they had me as four in the country. And I'm thinking I was going to play four on the team. And now they're telling me I'm the fourth best player in the country. This is crazy. Like I, I just, it didn't hit me until I got there. until I started playing some college matches that I'm good enough to play with the top guys in college already at 18 years old now. And I, that then it hit me and then it took a it took a minute for it to sink in and then realize oh maybe, maybe i do have a chance of, of doing this in the in the future and that's that's actually when i needed to build up my body because i went to college at six foot 155 pounds and i that gives me looked, chills though that's dope that's awesome that you're yeah. like not I, I feel like there's not many players that have that mindset you know they like they all, everybody thinks they can go pro it seems like yeah yeah but, and it's great i mean it's great to have those dreams and have those goals but i i, I also try to always kind of think about it and think about what's real and what's realistic to to believe and and not and i didn't want to ever think you know what if i if i work my tail off i do everything i can and i don't make it as a pro does that mean i'm a failure no that means i did my best and i got the most out of my ability and that was the most boring answer i would always give to reporters uh in press conferences when they would say oh well what's your goal you're 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 23 in the world. What's are you looking for top 20? I was like, I don't know. I hope I can, but I'm going to do my best and see where it takes me. And if that's top 20, great. 
that's top 10, great. Uh, you know, but if it's, if this is the best I do and I've done everything I can to be successful, then I can't be upset about that. I can't, you know, that I, I want to end my career knowing that I did my best and that's the goal. And we'll see where that, that takes me. And I, I can't be upset or, or, you know, I, I can't get too high or too low about the numbers. I can just do my best. And I think that really helped me to have um, peace of mind. Like I'm, I'm old now, I'm 43 years old and I've got no regrets about my career. And I, I feel like there, I'm lucky because I know there's a lot of other players that, that don't feel that way. They feel like they, they should have done this differently. They should have done that differently. And I, I, you know, I did my best. I made mistakes. That's not saying I was perfect in any way. I definitely made mistakes, but I learned from those mistakes. And I tried to do better each time. So I got no, uh, no regrets for, for how my career went and, you know, what I missed out on or what I, you know, the, the what they call sacrifices, you know, missing, missing out on some of the the late nights, missing out on some of the friends' weddings and things like that. But that was my choice. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to see how good I could be. And I, I found out. <laughs> you got it. You got it over a very important part of that story. You didn't mention. So who ended up playing number one singles and number two singles at Harvard? <laughs> so it ended up being, it worked out really, really interesting that I, I was hurt when I got to school. My shoulder was bad. So I didn't play most of the fall. And then, so um, what we did was we didn't have time to play a challenge match between me and my brother. And then we were supposed to play at the end. Uh, we, we actually both made the finals of what, what at the time was called the Rolex. Um, I don't know what it's called now, but the regionals. So we made the finals and we were also in the doubles. And then the doubles, the day before we were supposed to play the finals on, the, on match point, my brother uh, bruised his heel. He slammed his heel into the ground and couldn't play. So we didn't play the finals. That probably would have been our challenge match, but he's out for a little while. And then as we're going to play, we, we said we were going to platoon there in the spring. And then we we're going to play or, or for a little while. We had a short few matches. We we're going to just platoon at one and two. And then we we're going to play a challenge match for who plays the rest of the spring. And my brother, who is the smartest guy I've ever one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life, goes out and tries to do a sprint at the end of practice when he's already tired. And one of the other guys on the team said, I can beat you in a whatever it was, a 60. And he tried to run it and he tore his hamstring. So um he was out the entire spring so i played number one but it no was way. um unfortunately don't, it was just my brother was on the dl don't tell me this match never happened match don't never happened me. i have never as an adult played an, an actual competitive match against my brother with the last time we played i was probably about 10 years old when i was playing up in a 14s and i had to play him in an event like that but um since then we have never ever played in a in a competitive match so he, he so you can never say you're better than your brother, I guess. Never, never. I, I don't wow. think I ever would. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I swear, when I got to college, I thought he was so much better than me. Oh, actually, I tell you, about it. we we did play one time after that. Um, I was getting a bunch of press in uh in Fairfield, Connecticut, where I was playing high school tennis, and so he had gone off to college, and everyone now is saying, as as reporters always do, is oh, this kid's gonna be even better than his brother. He's so good. He's so good. And everyone's talking about me being better than Thomas. And um, he came back and we would never, we, when we would practice, we would just drill. We'd do a bunch of stuff. We wouldn't, we didn't really play. He came back right after high school practice from college and he would never do something like this. So I thought it was kind of weird. He's like, Hey James, I'm going to come up, you know, during your high school practice. Like, okay, cool. We'll, we'll hit some. He's like, we're going to play though. I was like, Oh, okay. Great. He beat me two and two with the entire team watching just to make sure that they all knew, okay, James might be better in the future, but I'm still a top dog here. And he made sure to let everyone know that he was much better than me at that time. You so didn't take that one, did you? What's that? You didn't take that, did you? 
Oh no, I definitely didn't tank that. I, um, I, he, he was, he was better than me then. That's I was still tiny. He was, he overpowered me so easily then. And that's why I, for so long, I still always thought of myself as the one that was, you know, the little brother that I couldn't compete with him. He was bigger, faster, stronger, better than me at everything growing up. So, um, it took that. I mean, part of that is the, is what sort of ingrained the hard work in me that I had to work so hard just to try to keep up with him. And, um, I do think it really helped me. But um, I still thought of it that way, that mentality of like, I got to work twice as hard as him just to be able to compete with him. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. No, I, I, and I think college tennis has always been a, an avenue for, for the top guys to take to, to reach their heights in the, on, on the pro circuit. But it does seem, I mean, now I've only been like, I can say like kind of full, like all the way in with college tennis for the last, I don't know, since I played college tennis, I guess, um, mm-hmm. the last 10 years or so. So, well, what do you think it like, it just seems like it just continues to get better and better. What, why do you think these players are having so much success? Is it more guys are going the college route and they're just taking that as a development route? Or do you think the college um, atmosphere and this, the, the resources that they have are developing these players into pros? I mean, we're seeing so many top guys come in their top 100 already. Yeah, I've, I've always thought it's extremely helpful to go the college route. I mean, there's, there's obviously the outliers. There's the not quite unicorns, but the the ones that are special, the Andy Roddick, you know, he had no business going to college. There was no reason. He was winning tour titles when he was 18 years old. So why why does he need to go to college? Even Sam Query, I remember I hit with him um, right before he made the decision, am I going to go to college? I'm going to turn pro. And then before you know it, he wins two challengers back to back. And okay, if you're winning challengers, that's the way I always felt. It's like if you're winning challengers, you're winning matches at tour events, um, you can probably, you can probably say it's it's safe to say you're you're going to be successful you can be successful on tour give it a run um anyone else i feel like it's so much better to to develop and you get you get free training you get uh, a group of guys that are, are like-minded that are that are going to kind of support you and 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 give you free practice and coaching and and you've got a, a structure uh, already built in and the the one thing that i always felt like was great is the pressure, you know, you feel pressure. I felt so much pressure being the, the number one player on the team. It comes down to a three all and you're the last one on the court. Didn't happen that often for me, but when it does, man, that's pressure. That's different than when you're going out and playing for yourself. So it's, um, and I think that that does kind of steal your nerves a little bit. So you go out and Davis cups, when I got away crowds cheering against me, it's, it, it, there weren't a lot that were more they were more difficult to deal with than that Georgia Bulldog crowd. You know, they, they really weren't. And so yeah. it made me realize, okay, if I can handle Same. this 18 years old, you know, when I'm 23, 24, 25 years old, and and hopefully a little bit more of a veteran, I can handle the fact that in Croatia, they're yelling at me and they're tell, they're cheering for me to double fault. And that's, you know, that's okay. That's the same thing Georgia was doing five, six years ago. So I, I really think it helps the players um, to, to find out who can deal with that kind of pressure. And that makes a big difference on tour because there's, there's a lot of players that are talented and there's a difference in the mindset, I think, for the guys that then make it as opposed to just being talented. Um, and so I think you can, you can sometimes weed that out a little bit in college, because if you can't handle the distractions of whatever fraternity sorority life, you can't handle the distractions of um, class schedule. You can't handle the distractions of the crowds. You can't handle all that kind of stuff. Well, you know what? It's only going to get amplified once you go on tour. So it's a way of finding out, Hey, I can handle this now. Now is it though? What they do in Athens, what they do in Athens is pretty crazy. Like I don't know if I've seen any environment that wild in the pro circuit. Like besides the team events, maybe. Yeah, yeah. The team events is probably the only time. I think that's why Ben Shelton. I think that's why Ben Shelton. I think that's why Ben Shelton transitioned to like, 
like he's he dealt with far more than than what he deals with on the tour as, as far as that those interactions go like yeah. he played in the sec where i mean he it was hostile environments and i think that is a part of why like he, he seems unfazed by almost anything that's why you see him make a, a, a the, the ridiculous run that he made in australia more, yeah. like less than a year out from winning the ncaa's yeah, he's such a fun case. He's so fun to see because he I think he brings that college mentality to the tour and he's getting in people's faces. He's fired up. And I mean, he doesn't mean anything disrespectful. You can see that in him. He's the nicest kid in the world. Greatest family. So um, I don't think he means anything by it, but he's bringing that college atmosphere. And um, it'll be interesting to see if that tones down a little bit because he sees that not everyone out there is doing that. I mean, when he would do that against uh, Georgia or, uh, you know, or an A&M or, or, um, or Florida State or anyone in the uh, in the college ranks, they're going to give it right back and the whole team's going to go crazy. And that's, you know, that's the give and take of college tennis. But out here, when you're playing Richard Gar- Gasquet, who's played 600 matches on tour, <laughs> he's not going, you know, in your face, back at you, doing anything like that. He's, you know, he's going about his business, being professional and trying to win the match. So we'll see if Ben kind of ta- tapers it down just a little bit and then, or if he continues having that spirit his whole time. I mean, I, I always thought... I was one of the people that thought Rafa would would tone it down um, from when I saw him starting out with the enthusiasm he had for every single point at 17 years old. And shoot, it's almost 20 years later and he's still got that same enthusiasm. So maybe Ben's got that uh, got that in him. But it's it's tough to compare anyone to, to Rafa. <laughs> right. No, I hope Ben doesn't lose that because I think that's what makes him special. And I think that's what puts him in that just that gives him that competitive edge and it lets him just even when he's down, he seems like he can always get himself back up. And I think that's what Rafa has done so well his whole career is like, yeah. even when you count him out, he, if he's down five love, he still believes that that sets his to win. So Absolutely. I, I think that hopefully that stays. You spoke about the distractions that happen in college tennis. It seems like we've been brought up before, but Big Foe is inviting those distractions. He wants to see <laughs> more crowd interaction, more movement. He, uh, he, wants to, he wants the noise to get up. It was yeah. a big topic down in Miami for that week. Uh, I asked Tommy about it in the presser and Tommy was, all for it. He wants to see young fans out there having fun. Yeah. Uh, how do you kind of process that? And like you being a tournament director of the Miami Open, one of the greatest tournaments in the world. I mean, is this something that you've considered that you would kind of look into tweaking a little bit to, to kind of offer more of that uh, fan interaction? Yeah, I think it's tough um, in an individual tournament. It's got to be kind of a tour wide mandate because you can't expect to go from one situation to another week to week. You got to know there's some consistency. Um, so I would love to see it if the entire tour started talking about it and, and allowing more. I've always felt that the big stadiums, it actually wouldn't be a problem at all. If you're in Arthur Ashe Stadium and there's 15, 20,000 people there and they're going crazy the entire time, it's like a baseball stadium. So you, you get used to the ambient noise, you get used to all the craziness going on. The, the time where I think it would be a problem is when it's at a challenger and there's 25 people there and you know someone stomps their foot on a metal um bench you notice that when it's quiet and then there's there's noise that's when it's a problem but when it comes to just noise going on in general if it's if it's all the time i mean we've all practiced where we're next to other uh other tennis going on where we might be next to a road cars driving by we might be next to um a baseball field where they're practicing you know you're you're used to that when it's when it's just all the time but if you're doing that and everything's quiet and then someone yells and shouts your name oh then you're gonna you know jerk and you know see what's going on and and that's when it becomes a problem. But if we get used to the fact that there's always noise and we can handle that in the big stadiums, I would love that. I know it would be the only the only downside um, for players when it if it was extremely loud consistently is it's tough to hear the ball. And that does actually make a difference when you hear the spin coming off, when you hear the pace, you can hear how hard it's hitting. Um, but 
I like noise. I always loved team sports, watching and having a home and an away and someone going crazy during, you know, during it. And I like that, but um, I don't know. It'd be tough to say only if there's this many people in the stands, can we have noise because it's always going. Um, I definitely have been in the crowd, you know, Miami open, I always walk around and try to watch from different places in the arena and see what's going on. And I definitely heard people getting a little frightened. Wait a minute, I can't get up. I can't talk during this. Like, I need to, sh- like, yeah, you do. Like, that's just part of the rules. And it seems like most of the crowds get used to it and they they can accept it. But I, I wouldn't mind seeing um, a little bit of that Davis Cup attitude or college atmosphere um, come to the Pro Tour. But I think that would ruffle a lot of feathers. So it might take a while. It, it, I think that's kind of the the glacial shift that'll happen, not quite a, a an avalanche. And, and JPEG says she wants all trash talk to be invited in as well. So we want the, the, the Americans are outspoken about what they want done out here. I love it. She's the greatest man. She she just she just puts her work boots on and goes. I mean, she's awesome. Uh, we had uh, I think you know Miami Open. She made semis of singles, wins the doubles. So every night I'm having a you know if I had any hair I'd be pulling it out about where we can schedule her, how much you know how much rest she needs, and where can where can we put her? And you know we want to keep her happy. She's you know she's a star, so we want to have her on the stadium. We want to make sure that we give her the prime times because we got fans that want to see her. And she's just like just put me on and play. I just want to play, and I, I mean I love it. No complaining, just. Um, and I was thinking, I'm thinking, is she going to pull out of the doubles? And I talked to her coach, David Witt, and he's like, no, she will not pull out. She's, if she's not hurt, she's not pulling out. She's going to play. And she played and she, I mean, she did so well. She's so great for tennis, I think. And seeing her in Charleston, just, and I'm just tough. I mean, I love that. Uh, yeah. I love her attitude. And yeah, she's the type that wouldn't mind trash talk. And she's got her, I mean, she's got her hands in a little bit with the football and the hockey with yeah. that her, her family's involved in. So She's seen some real trash talk. Um, so I think she yeah. wants to bring that to tennis and I, I love it. I mean, it's that's the college tennis kind of a model where you got guys that genuinely don't like each other, teams that genuinely don't like each other, and they're gonna talk trash and leave it all out on the court. And I, I love that. And I will say Heineken dropped the ball on not giving her a sponsorship. I think it was the Australian Open and the presser. She just popped one open and she was just chilling with a Heineken in her hand. Yeah. I mean, that's, just, that's a layup. You got to go take your layups. And I, I think Stella Artois hopped in there. Yeah. Saw the easy opportunity for a, a beer drinking superstar. A top I think, and I think she was her own agent. Francis, Francis joked about that because Francis had a deal and she just popped in and said, hey, where's mine? And she got, I think they, <laughs> uh, they, they filled, uh, you know, they, they called her up and got her, uh, got her a deal. But yeah, I think I've seen her. She did that Australia. And I think she did it last year maybe at Madrid when she made the finals there too and, and popped open a Heineken and said that that's what she does when she has to take the drug test. Cause you know, <laughs> at tennis players, we know those come very often, especially when you go deep in tournaments, you got the drug tester with you right next to you as you, uh, as you do your press or as you're doing whatever, before you got to go to the bathroom. And um, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, an adult beverage helps that, uh, that process. <laughs> up a bit. No, I remember seeing JJ Wolf walk out of the, his presser and he's like, you want to come take this test? I'm like, we got a drug test already. He's like, it's like, it's immediately after those yeah. matches. Yeah. He's joking. Um, no, JPEG, I would love to see her go back to college tennis days and watch her negotiate the NIL deals. I think she might crush that. <laughs> yeah, she would. She's, she's pretty good. She's a, she's a pretty smart cookie. Just like, uh, just like her family, her mom and dad. That's cool. So we're based in Cincinnati. Uh, tennis points headquarters in America are here. And we know you had some success in this city reaching your first career final. Uh, I have a memory. I, I think I couldn't find pictures of it on the internet. But didn't you and Marty Fish throw out the elbows? Throw out the opening pitch at the Reds game. We did. Yeah, I, uh, I think I was there. 
think I, I've got I probably have that picture somewhere, but I don't know. The legendary picture with like the old like pinstripe jerseys, I yep. think. Yeah, I threw it to Marty. Uh, we did it. Um, so he caught it and I threw. Um, and we, I think we did batting practice. Is it batting <laughs> practice there too? I think we did batting practice. We loved that. I mean, that was one of my favorite things to do when I got the opportunity to, to do batting practice at any of the baseball fields. Because I, I, like I said, I played baseball when I was a kid, but stopped when That's I was about good. 13. But I still love taking batting practice in those in those big fields and stuff. And uh, that was a ton of fun. We got to meet Ken Griffey Jr. Um, had a blast with him. Talking shop and um, it was a lot of fun. He was, uh, I mean, he's obviously one of the, one of the sweetest swings ever in the game. And so to hear how he kind of honed his craft, it's it's just fun. I mean, just like um, Francis talking about meeting Dwayne Wade and LeBron, and when you get to meet greats in other sports, it's great to just listen and see what they what they did uh, and if there's anything that translates. And sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it's not the same because it's a totally different sport, a different process. But a lot of times that you'll find that there are similarities in um, the actual journey and what they went through and then the the work that they put in. So that was a, that was a ton of fun. Pretty sick that Griffey is a Cincinnati born and raised kid who uh, my dad actually competed against him and Larkin growing up in high school, which was crazy. So uh, we had some legends back in the day. So yeah. you throwing out that opening pitch was pretty cool. You, um, yeah. you actually went to the finals of what was it? 2007. Oof. Uh, your, your memory of the, the, the year is probably better than mine. Um, but around there, yeah. Oh, six. Yeah. One of those years, it was, it was, it was a good one when I, when I got smoked by Roger as usual, <laughs> man, that guy was unbelievable. I played it. I played so well that event. I went, I beat, I think I beat Davidenko in the semis and beat him bad. I played well. I mean, just the coach, the coach Davidenko was so freaking tough. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I beat him four and two or three and two, something like that. I, I played unbelievable. And then, uh, Playing Roger, okay, maybe I got a chance this time. I'm playing so well. He just toyed with me, beat me one and four. And it's so frustrating. When I, I mean, every time I played my best tennis, it was like he was just right there on the other side of the net to show me, hey, your tennis is good, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> what was now like you got to talk? I mean, you talked about legends and stuff. What was your relationship with like with Roger Feder? Oh, it was great. I mean, he he's so um he's so unique and special. That's what's great about our sport is there's no one path. Um, and Roger is off the court so unbelievably laid back. And I mean, playing him, I played him there. I played him in the finals of Indian Wells uh one year. And before the match, honestly, if you if you didn't see that he was getting his ankles taped, because we were just like in the in the training room. I, I don't know if I was getting my uh fingers taped or something done, like stretched out. If you didn't see that, if you just heard our conversation, you'd think we were at like a cafe, just having a coffee, talking about, oh, what are you doing after this? And what's the family up to? And how are they doing? And oh, you're going back to Switzerland soon. Great. And this and just as casual as can be relaxed, talking about that. Meanwhile, we're going out on the court for a final for a Masters 1000 final 30 minutes from then. And then we go out there and he's a killer. I mean, as much as it looks like he's calm and cool. Um, everyone knows he had a temper when he was young. I mean, he has that in him. He just managed to sort of not hide it, but harness it better um, and use um, his calmness to his advantage. And mm -hmm. but he was he was a killer. Once you get on the court, he wants to win every match. And he was. Um, but I also think he was when I did finally beat him at the Olympics. I, I swear he was. Wow. Happy, he was genuinely happy for me. He said, hey, go ahead and win this whole thing. And um, when I was coming back, um, he. He, when I hurt after I hurt myself, got injured, got sick. He, and when I was coming back and he beat me again, but he was like, he was like, man, it's great to see you back. We want you back to, to, you know, full strength. We want you back on tour and ready to, you know, ready to compete at this level. He was so nice and genuine. He was, 
I told the story when I lost him at Indian Wells in the finals that when I did break my neck in Rome, I got one note in the hospital handwritten and it was from Roger um, saying, you know, get well soon. And the guy was just genuinely was he is he is just genuinely a great guy. So I still have a good relationship with him. I still, um, you know, hope to see him again down the road. Maybe we'll bring him back to Miami for for some some sort of role as an ambassador or something and um, would love to have him around. And he's um yeah he's he's just a, a really a genuinely great guy and that's the kind of thing i say about about all those guys really is even if they weren't the best tennis players in the world we were our our hand, our sport is in such good hands that they're just genuinely really good guys and like where does that win 2008 beijing olympics you take out Federer. is that where does that rank in your most memorable wins of your career one or one a it's one i mean I, probably one actually i shouldn't even say one a it, it, that's the that was the coolest thing because you know, like I said, when you play my so my two biggest wins are probably when I've got USA across my chest. It was beating Roger there at the Olympics and then beating Eugenie in the 2007 Davis Cup when we won it. Um, and so beating Roger, that feeling um, and then knowing that it was as part of a team, you know, you you win you win a match when you're normally on tour. You go back, you celebrate with your with your friends, your family, your your coach, and that's about it. And when I got back to my, well, first when I got into the locker room, I got a call from the dream team. That was, you know, Kobe, no. and Wade, and those guys. They called because it was actually, um, what's his name? Um, Ron Williams' uh, mom uh, was watching, and she she came to watch um, watch the game, watch the match, and she then told uh, <laughs> told Deron, hey, give give James a call. Um, you know, I just watched him; he just had an unbelievable. So they called me. Then I got back to my, I mean, it's basically dorms in the Olympic village that you're staying in. And all over the door is, you know, congratulations, great job from the U.S. rowing team, from the cycling team, from the archery, whatever, you know, whatever team is that, that, I mean, it was covered. And I mean, that's so special and so cool to think that like that's, that they cared about me because that's, it made me feel like I was part of the U.S. team. Uh, and that was, that was really cool. Shout to D. Will. One of my, he's part of my, maybe my favorite college team of all time with uh, D. Brown and Luther Head. That team at Illinois was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that's 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 a fun memory though. I mean, yeah. I think so. We've touched on on that. I want to kind of get back to the tour life. Um, what are your thoughts? ATP Next Gen Finals. Mm -hmm. It's been a really fun place for me to just kind of watch the tour tinker with some rules mm -hmm. um, as as far as. Uh, pace of play and you know no ad scoring fast sets to four yeah. um and those types of things where do you do you think that do you ever see those things coming to the normal you know 250s 500s 1000s events or no um i like the pace of play stuff i like the shot clock i, I love it being uniform i'm actually almost in favor of really taking any subjectivity out of it with the way um um uh, the way umpires can decide okay with what i'm going to wait until i call the score and after a long point they tend to wait a little bit longer before they call the score and start the clock i would almost say you know give them more time but make it as soon as the point ends and then you just so if it even if it's 40 seconds it's 40 seconds but as soon as the point ends the, the clock starts and you've got you that's how long you have and you play so everything is always fair it's always the same there's no point in even bothering to argue it's the point ends and this is how much time you have um, I always liked that. I played really fast when I was on tour, so I, yeah, yeah. I benefited from the the shot clock. I think because I I, I wouldn't have ever come close to the <laughs> to a violation. Um, but I I like that, and I'm uh, the one thing I'm always a fan of is trial and error. Um, as long as you're committed to the fact that if it doesn't work, you can go back to the way it was. So I know there's traditionalists that hate it, but I would say if we want to try two out of three in slams, 
let's see what happens for two slams. And if it doesn't work and everyone hates it and it doesn't feel the same, it doesn't feel as special. Okay. We're done with it. And that won't change. That won't alter history. It'll still make that, you know, the best players most likely still going to come out of it, but two slams is not going to change the entire path. So let's try it. And then whether it be no ad scoring, I love the next gen finals for that aspect that they're going to try it. And then, Hey, it didn't even work in next gen. So we're not going to implement it, but look at what happened with coaching. They like it. They're moving it forward. They're Mm -hmm. doing on-court coaching. Now they're allowing it and players seem to be liking it and being able to prove, and it doesn't affect the pace of play. So I I like trying things and seeing what's going to work. So I'm I'm a fan of all the new things. No ad scoring. I thought at the time, and I'll, I'll also be honest. When some things I think that we should that we try, I don't like in general. But then they turn out to work. No ad scoring. I thought in like in college tennis, I hated it, and now I see it, and I'm like, you know what? It's it's a little more exciting. It, it gives a little more uniform um, time of match. So you know what? It's it's okay. And it, and you look at like statistics and stuff, and it doesn't really change the outcomes that much in terms of the top, the higher ranked teams winning or the higher ranked players winning. So if it's not changing it, it's making it more uniform and making it a better TV product. That's also something that people need to be. That's now me on the side of the tournament director is you think about the other aspect of the sport, the entertainment value. If we can guarantee an ESPN or a tennis channel or whoever um that it's going to fit within a two-hour time frame well that's a lot more important to them um so now they can buy just two hours of of tv time instead of worrying that a match could go five hours because when you do three out of five sets with ad scoring i mean that match could be 80 minutes or that match could be four and a half hours so to to budget for that on a a tv uh, aspect is much more difficult than if you say hey it's no ad scoring it's two out of three sets that's never going to take more than two and a half hours so you know, let's let's have that and and give them that that kind of a time frame, and it maybe can make it a better product. Yeah, and I'm 100 with you. I mean, if I'm going to play tennis, I, no ad scoring, not really for me. I just feel like it um, doesn't give you that same rhythm. But as far as the viewing experience, I mean, as a fan, I mean, watching college doubles with no ad scoring and watching the teams decide who gets that return and yeah. singles, just kind of the same way, just kind of the mental uh, games you can play with that. I mean, I think that just adds a another element of fun and. Like you said, it just keeps the pace of play at a more guaranteed time. And I'd be interested to see how that kind of goes. But as far as the coaching on the court, have you do you feel like players have really utilized that as much as – like I don't feel like I see it that often being utilized. Even at the Miami Open, I was watching for it. I mean, yeah. Fritz had a little bit of dialogue on when I was on, on his center court, like a little bit. But yeah. I really don't see many players kind of going into the coach's corner. Yeah, and I think that's a good sign. I mean, I, I always do think that um... – and that's what one thing that the purists say is that problem solving out on the court is part of the deal. And that's part of the game. And I agree. I, I like that. But um, the way the rules are written, it's, it is difficult to have a dialogue. You can have them talk to you or you can talk to them, but you can't have really a back and forth. So really all you're getting is a couple things here and there. And I think that's also great because that was where I think some of the violations were coming is, okay, Hey, step up on this second serve return. Okay. That's a coaching violation, but now you can say that. And it's okay. It's, and sometimes that's all it takes is like thinking about it. You know, I think back to my Davis cup uh, ties when I had a, a captain sitting right there on the bench. And a lot of times you can tell like which players are different. And Andy would have like full conversations with Patrick and I would have, you know, I'd sit down on the changeover and he got 90 seconds and we'd say, okay, good job. <laughs> um, you know, and that's about it. We, we didn't have much, you know, back and forth, but you know, the best thing about it was that he understood me. He understood that. And then what would happen is, Hey, you're forgetting your body, sir. You know, make sure to make sure to not, not forget about that. You're going for aces too much. 
okay, you know, that's it. One, one quick thing, one, you know, Hey, you know, just make sure you step in on that second serve a little more, or, or maybe give a little tiny bit of space or something, you know, just like one little comment. And a lot of times that's all you need because you've, you've got the right rhythm, you've got the right focus, but you just need to adjust one little thing. And I think that's where coaches can be helpful during a match because I think it's so crazy to think we're going to totally overhaul something or start going into really deep uh, discussions while you're playing a match. It's it's really just going to be, you've done that work beforehand. If you, if your coach is going that deep during the match, maybe they didn't have a long enough conversation before the match on the game plan, on the strategy of what you're looking to do. And yeah, maybe they changed something. Maybe you looked for, Hey, this guy they're they're passing down the line on their backhand side, 80% of the time. So look for that. And you come into them, eight times in the first eight of them, seven of them go cross court. Okay. Hey, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's found something and he, he knows that we're looking there. So maybe change that real quick or something, you know, but you're not going that deep into, into anything during the match. I don't think. Right. No. And I think that's, I think the other aspect for me would be, it would be cool. Like for the labor cup. I think my favorite part of the labor cup was honestly hearing the players mic'd up. I mean, that's changeovers and stuff, hearing that dialogue between Feder and Murray and Roger <laughs> and, or, and Rafa and all those guys. And just like, watching them help the younger guys and stuff. I mean, that to me is like, I learned more from that than, than almost anything. So I think the more mic'd up uh, content we can get from these guys, I mean, that's what I love. I mean, I'm a big NBA fan myself. So, I mean, listen to those, those huddles that get mic'd up. I mean, NFL's done it more. I think if tennis can do that, I think we can really tap into that casual fan market, which I think is something that's important for tennis right now. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept because we've been talking with um, with ESPN a little bit. You know, we we still you know convene quite often in between slam and stuff. And one thing that was a really hot topic of conversation uh, recently was watching the golf, watching the Masters, and you see guys Rory walking and talking, uh, Max Homa walking and talking and yeah. talking. Like, so how can we incorporate that in tennis where you get to know them a little better and um, it'd be interesting to see if we can if we can normalize that. That hey, when uh, as is now becoming sadly customary, it's a set break and one person's going to walk off the court for five minutes. Well, hey, let's throw an AirPod in or throw uh, a headset on that guy that's sitting out there, that or that woman that's sitting out there, and say, hey, what are you thinking right now? How's it going? You know, what do you you know what do you think you need to change or what do you think you've done well? And just you know, or you know, hey, what's going through your head? Are you gonna are you gonna eat something on this changeover? What are you gonna eat? you know just yeah. Getting exactly. to know them a little bit. Um, what's that? Be- what's that gel that you keep slurping at the at the changeovers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throwing a sponsor ad. Uh, you know, JPEG. You getting the Heineken tonight? What's going on? You know, uh, you, you, you know, you can get, you can do those kind of things. And the other thing that I, the other time I felt like would be really valuable is that warm up. Um, the you know two hours before a match, an hour before a match, depending on individuals how often they feel like. But they go out on the practice courts and they hit for a half an hour. And it's generally for most players, I can speak for myself at least, it's very relaxed. It's you're just getting the blood flowing. You're not doing anything that stre- strenuous. You're you're um, you're hitting for twenty minutes, thirty minutes. You're getting things going. You're feeling a little, a little rhythm. You're feeling the courts. And if you were to throw in an uh, AirPods while you're doing that and talk, and even if it's not like the the um, you know, the audio isn't perfect or whatever, just, yeah. Hey, what are you thinking, you know, for this, this match? And we're not going to get into deep strategy because, you know, you know, you'll never get that when you're playing a one-on-one it's different than golf, but you can get a, Hey, after this, I'm going in, I'm going to get, um, get a stretch. I'm going to grab a bar. I'm going to, you know, sit and watch this match that I'm following. And, you know, we'll see if, 
you know, Sakari and Andrescu go six in the third, like they always do when it's when I'm playing coming after them. And then I got to sit around and wait. And then I'll be on the bike a couple more times. And, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, me and me and my hitting partner are going to go play some cards and I'm going to I'm going to kick his butt in gin or, you know, whatever you're going to talk about. Um, and that's a way to get to know the players. Hey, what do you do for this time where, while you're waiting before you get on the court? And I think that could be something that would be valuable for fans to, to get a little insight into the player's uh, mentality. I think that'll be awesome. I think you see some of those fans that sit in the stands. Um, they hold the little piece in their ear that they can listen yeah. to the uh, the audio from the the uh, ESPN yeah. or whatever. And yeah. I think to give them that, so they're watching, and then they can also li- listen as well. I think that adds just a uh, whole different dynamic to to the viewership experience that would take tennis to another level. How great would that be to hear Francis on on one of those? You know, he got an injury timeout from his from uh, you know someone he's playing, and you're sitting in the in the crowd with one of those things, and you can hear Francis just you know, just laughing and goofing off, you know, for those five minutes while the other guy's getting treated. And, oh man, this guy isn't even really hurt. I'm going to, I'm going to take him out anyway. And just, you know, joking around and having a fun. I mean, that'd be unbelievable for that experience. I went to that desert smash party in Indianapolis or in uh, Indian Wells yeah. uh, where he was, him and pink stole the show. And I think like, I mean, yeah, he's an entertainer. He's one of the best entertainers yeah. in sports. I mean, this is like, he, he's worked his whole life for these moments and he embraces all that stuff. I mean, that's, big time content that's what we need so yeah um i just completed my second go around on the sunshine double uh it was super cool to meet you on the first one in miami and then i mean just to watch the improvements you guys made to the campus uh little things that i noticed i mean which was really cool that you guys are continuing to tinker uh just the setup for to make easier and more efficient um kind of the grounds easier to walk and stuff for fans um kind of talk about this role that you've taken on as the director of the miami open um it's a lot different being on this side of it, I'm sure, but you get to bring that player mindset and like the experiences that you've, you've had as a top player in the world. And now you get to try to make the game better from that standpoint in, in the world. Yeah, it's I feel lucky to be part of it. And um, this trend to have former players as tournament directors is, is I think, a good thing for the game because it gives you a little added um, respect when you go into the locker room, when you're doing the scheduling, when you're talking to the players about what's going on and what's possible. And I know I'm also very lucky to be the tournament director of a tournament like Miami, where we have the ability to say yes to a lot of things, where we can tinker, where we can add, where we can um, do so much for the players that we want to make it, uh, we want to make them happy. Um, and I just think, you know, when things, when there is a no, it's a little different hearing it from a player that you know is fighting for you. They know that, it, hey, if there's something that the players really want, um, I'm going to try to get it. And if it's not possible, it's not possible. They know I tried. And so sometimes going into the locker room and saying, look, this is a schedule and this is the way it is you know someone like jess you know she her schedule can't always be perfect because she's playing singles and doubles so this is the way it's got to be look i tried i'm sorry but there's really no way we can shift it this way and then you know she's like okay i get it you know and and i think that's different than hearing it from um someone that's never been there that's never been in that locker room that doesn't know what it's like to to play a match on a little bit of rest to and not know what it's like to play a night match or something like that so um, I think it helps. And then the other thing that it helps is it, it helps me um, to, um, you know, to really think about the rest of the the rest of this, the tennis world, that it's not just players that then, you know what, I was so isolated in thinking about players when I was when I was a player, that now to think about the sponsors, to think about the fans, to think about um, the media, to think about um, everything else that goes into it, it, it's really been a learning experience. And now I'm five years in and I feel like so much right. And I appreciate you saying it's gotten better this year because I feel like I'm hopefully getting better at my job every year too. And that first year learning kind of on the job 
Um, I know I needed a lot of help and now it feels like it's running a lot better and I feel more comfortable. And it's, it's the ability for me to give back to the sport that I've loved and has given me so much. And when I got out of the game for a little while on purpose to see what else was out there and it realized it actually made you appreciate how much you love the game and how much passion you have that, you know, I don't, I, I thought I wanted to get away from it because I was so immersed in it as a player for 14 years that, um, after I stepped away, I realized, you know what, it is, it is still what I'm passionate about. So there's nothing wrong with being a part of it, even if I can't play the way I used to play. So this was an opportunity to do that and hopefully um, you know, have some sort of a positive impact on the sport. That's sweet. I mean, that's awesome. No, it definitely has gotten better. I mean, just in the two years that I went, I talked to um, one of the girls that I know is a, she is in control of the campus and how like, the things are set up. Her name is Jordan Brobst. And she just said oh. she works for the Hard Rock and she, how much she loves the job. And I mean, I can just tell the passion for making that event great is there. And um, you can feel that when you walk onto the grounds. I mean, uh, the energy is amazing. It's like a constant party of tennis fans just celebrating the game, which is cool. But uh, g- give us your top memories whether you as kind of a fan slash director of just like you kind of being over, over this event, what, what are your top memories in the last, this past uh, couple of weeks that we had here? For Miami open the past, uh, best memories. I mean, well, one was that center Alcaraz match. Um, you know, that was incredible. Some of the best points. And that's, um, you know, a lot of times I don't get a chance to go out to the court and watch. I'm watching from my office or I'm watching kind of um, as I'm walking by doing something else or in someone else's office. But that one I got out to watch most of it um, on the grounds and it was that was incredible. And it, it's so fun to see those young guys that are going to battle hopefully for the next 10 years. And, and that level just keeps improving and improving. Um, so American tennis awesome. fans are lucky. We've gotten that match yeah. three times now in the last seven months or whatever. Yeah, and it's been incredible every time. So seeing that one was fun. Um, the, the women's final, um, Kvitova, that first set, um, I want to say it was 16-14 in a tiebreak. I got to watch that. Actually, my my kids and my, my family were there for that one, and I, I got to watch that tiebreak with them, and I got to tell them all about you know how nice Petra is and how hard, how persistent she was to come back and that she could have probably been out of the game a few years ago and you know how nice she is. And um, so that was that was a fun memory to see my – uh my kids um look up to her and and cheer for her uh during that one because of her story because of her backstory and then um them getting to meet coco and jess after the match uh their doubles final which was a ton of fun um that was that was definitely a highlight for me and then um the other one on the men's side was chris eubanks you know seeing him uh, in the quarterfinals and i've known him for a long time since he actually came out here to san diego to to train for a week or two because I, I love helping the young players. I, I'm not really able to travel a lot to help someone to coach someone, but if they want to come out here, I'm always open to it. And Chris took me up on that when he was very young, and I love seeing him succeed because he's been so cerebral before about his career and really thinking through a ton of things and um, and also being relatively realistic. But to have those dreams and now be in the top hundred and now shooting for his next goal, you know, okay, now get to top fifty and see where you, where it takes you and. You know, it was, it was really fun to see. And he played unbelievable. Um, it wasn't oh, he was handed to him. He was uh, great getting through qualities. And so really happy and proud for him. So that was fun. And, and personally for me, um, hanging with Mike Tyson for a minute there was was great because I uh, I actually just, and I mean, not, not, I mean, just coincidence, I actually finished his book probably the day before I left for Miami. So after just no reading way. all about his struggles, his ups and downs in his life. I mean, I had met him uh, quite a few times before at tennis events because his daughter's a, a very good tennis player. Um, but then yep. to know now what he had been through, um, aside from what you see 
uh, in public. Um, it was pretty cool. So uh, getting to talk to him for me, that's I, I don't I generally don't get excited to meet uh, a lot of a lot of celebs. But um, when you literally just finish their book and then they happen to be <laughs> at your event, that's uh, that was a pretty cool coincidence, I thought. That's awesome. And, you know, Chris Eubanks, another college tennis guy who's mm-hmm. broken out. I mean, I don't think that guy has an enemy in the world. I mean, he no. just he's just the nicest dude ever. And yeah. I love watching him on the desk on, on the tennis channel. I love his, yeah. his Twitter account. And he's uh, just always candid. I mean, you just always feel like it's coming from a good place, always genuine. Uh, him and Tiafa both. I mean, those we've got some good faces of the tour. Um, yeah. where, where do you think tennis is headed? I mean, now we got Rafa's pretty much. I think I, I think I can say that he's probably going to be just a clay court guy going forward. Mm-hmm. Novak is um, obviously still at the top of the game, but Roger's out. Do you feel like where do you feel like the game's headed uh, on on the men's uh, side of things at least? I think we're at an interesting point because I, I know that I was around back when everyone was scared. What's going to happen when Andre and and Pete retire, and when they're gone, what's going to ha- is anyone ever going to fill that void? And then you know Roger filled that void. We had Andy uh, for um, about a year, and then it was Roger taking over as a number one player, and then Rafa steps up, and then Novak steps up, and. Um, and now we're wondering what's going to happen when they leave the the scene and someone always fills it. And right now it's Carlos Alcaraz coming up and, and showing that he can, uh, he can fill that void. And now then it'll be, okay, was, were the, the other guys that were the younger guys, the, the Zverevs, the Sitsi passes, were they somewhat overwhelmed by the, the, the big three initially? And now maybe they can, they can see that, okay, now they got a, a newfound confidence that, um, Novak isn't maybe isn't playing as well, or Rafa's only playing on clay, and Roger's gone. Now they feel like okay, now we can we can start taking over. We can start winning slams. Or is Alcaraz going to start you know hoarding them the way Roger did early in his career? And um, it'll be fun to see. We got great Americans too, which is awesome um, with Francis and Taylor and um, Ben Shelton and Sebastian Corda when he's healthy. So Tommy Paul. I mean, we got some great guys. Yeah. So we'll see if they if we can break the streak of Andy about 20 years now since he won uh, since he won the U.S. Open. Um, that's a lot of fun. Holger Runa is uh, an incredible talent. Casper Ruud, you know, will he break through if if Rafa? Um, it stops being the the absolute king of clay and starts um, becoming mortal again, um, and yeah. riding off into the sunset. Maybe Casper Ruud can win a uh, can win a, a Roland Garros. So, um, and then is Medvedev going to take over as the best hardcore player um, in the world and start dominating the U.S. and Australian Opens? And I mean, there's a I lot think- of fun storylines. So. Um, on the men's side, it's it's exciting. And on the women's side, it's been so much variety for the past, I don't even know, five years, six years, where there hasn't been someone that's dominant since Serena. So is Iga going to come back healthy and, and really start dominating again? Or are we going to have this sort of cavalcade of new champions and new uh, new faces that are just going to always be not, you know, one slam, uh, you know, winning one slam, maybe winning two, and and that's it. Um, and it just kind of rotates. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see. With, yeah. And just the Carlos thing. I mean, he's the guy that's, I think, captivated just a casual fan right now because he has the power. He's got the speed and the quickness and he's got the finesse that like, you just don't see in athletes very often. It's like, you can't, it's not fair to have all of that. You can't have the <laughs> biggest forehand on the, on the tour maybe, and then have the softest hands with an elite drop shot. And yeah. then just the, the, the court coverage, and the speed out of the corners to recover the flexibility, like Novak to, to hit shots out of awkward stances and, and, rec- and just get from defense transition from defense to offense so quickly. It's yeah. just like that dude's a specimen. And I mean, he has the head on his shoulders to, to just, it's, it's so easy to root for the kid. I mean, yeah. he just had so much fun out there. 
he's such a nice guy. And right now he absolutely does have it all. Uh, the only thing you worry about right now is the injuries. He's had quite a few already and he's only 19 years old. So you hope that's more just a protection. You know, Juan Carlos Ferrero may be saying, hey, look, any sort of injury, we're going we're gonna to nip it in the bud. We're not going to let you make anything worse. We're not going to get you any sort of injury that's going to take you out for six months to a year. We're going to keep everything to a couple weeks where we, you know, we shut you down and then you get right, you know, you get right back and you're, you're healthy for every slam because that's, that's what's going to define your legacy. I think it's pretty, pretty apparent already that he's the type of player that his legacy will probably be defined by grand slams. He's not a guy that's going to, uh, that it's going to matter whether he wins 12 or 13 two fifties. It's more about how many grand slams he's going to win. So um, I hope that's more just a protective um policy out of it out of his team and him because he's got a great team with him I, I i spoke to juan carlos it's probably five years ago when he told me he's he's training a kid that's going to be special and you know he knew from early on that this kid is going to be something incredible and um so it, he is really captivating and you just hope he can stay healthy and this was the same way we i think some of us felt about rafa when rafa was 18 19 years old it's like he can't play this physical get to every ball have this much enthusiasm um and still be playing 10 years from now and here it is almost 20 years later, and he's still doing it with that kind of gusto. So um, I, you got to hope he's like Rafa, but that's yeah. a pretty, pretty tough ask. <laughs> it, no, no, no doubt. And that's why I don't like when people draw the, make the comparisons so frequently, but it's like, it's almost, I, I don't blame him. It's hard not to when you just, this guy's so captivating, but I do have to, I mean, think that Juan Carlos Ferrero, a guy that's had plenty of success on the tour, a guy you're familiar with is, I mean, you have to think he took a page out of Nadal's playbook a bit and just tries to prevent some of these injuries and, I mean, it looked like Carlos was back on the courts practicing on the clay today, so that's a good sign for fans. Um, shout out to Holger Rune, another guy who was our first uh, active player on our podcast. Uh, over a year ago, he came on, and he was outside the top 100, and we asked him what his goals were, and he was like, you know, I want to win three titles. I want to be top 25 in the world, and um, I want to have a couple top 10 wins. And it's like, boom, he gets three titles, he goes top 10, and he gets top 10 wins. And it's like, these guys are setting these goals at 18, 19 years old. That's just like, it's hard to believe, and these guys are re they're reaching them. So, yeah. Um, in American tennis, I mean, great hands. I mean, I think we had, was it, 15 guys at one point, some point this year were top 10, uh, top 100, yeah. which is just absurd. And yeah. a ton of these great. guys are fun to watch with contrasting styles. And you've mm -hmm. got guys like Foe and Shelton and Corda. And, like, when Corda gets healthy and Tommy Paul, who's one of the best athletes on the tour, I mean, it's just, like, a lot of fun guys to root for. J.J. Wolf brings a different style of firepower and just – College it's tennis. Just, yeah, it's college tennis, man. I think that's yeah. where these guys get it from. But Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to finish up with the last question is kind of what what role besides we, we know obviously what it is with the Miami, but outside of that, what role does tennis play in your life right now? Um, you know, tennis is it's still a passion. I still love it. Um, but with the commentary, I've, I'm far enough away now that I'm, I know I'm not. Um, I've got no delusions of uh, of ever performing the way I, I did. So now it's much more comfortable just to be around it and to appreciate it as a fan. Um, I mean, I watched that. Like I said, I was able to sit out there and watch Alcaraz Center and I can watch that as a fan now and just say, man, that's incredible. And, you know, I can maybe have a little more insight than the, than the average fan because I've been out on that court or I've been out playing guys that maybe aren't exactly like them, but I've played the Rafa's, the Rogers, the Novaks. And so I know what it's like to play some of the all-time greats, um, but I can just watch now and enjoy it. And that's, I do think back to what I was saying, like, I think that has a lot to do with me having no regrets is that I did my best. So now I can just, I can just appreciate it and know, Hey, 
if someone feels like I should have done better, you know, that's on them. That's cool. But if someone feels like I overachieved, then that's on them too. And, you know, I feel like I did everything I could. And now I get to love it. I get to love the sport. I get to talk about them and I get to be a commentator and talk about a match I might be watching anyway. And I get to do it with people I like. So um, I feel very lucky. And then when I can give my two cents and help, like I am with this kid, you know, with Hudson Rivera, like I said, before he goes off to Stanford and, and seeing his progression, I'm not at the point because my kids now are 10 and nine years old. They, they actually still like me. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> they, 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 for some reason want me still around. And I know that's going to change in about two or three years. So I want to be home. So I'm not going to go out and like actually coach right now and, and be on tour 30 weeks out of the year. But if I can help young players, you're not closing that door though. It sounds like, Oh no, no. Like I said, they're going to, they're going to want me out of the house in three or four years, probably. So I, they might say, dad, get out of here. And so maybe I will go on the road and, and coach, but it's not my, it's not my intention right now to be out there all the time. If I can help a player with like big picture stuff and, and be, um, be around them and just help them when I can, um, that's definitely something that's interesting to me. And, um, but going out on the road all the time isn't, isn't my goal right now. Um, but I just, I, I get to enjoy it and I get to, you know, think about, cause you don't think about it at the time. It, it's, it's similar to when I was coming back and like trying to be better each day. Um, now after you've been through 14 years of being on tour, you don't think about how much you've learned and how much you gained, uh, your perspective on the tour, your perspective on the calendar, uh, your perspective on the work ethic and everything that you did to be successful can actually help someone else that's going through those same things. And it's funny for me now to see some of the young players going through, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the same things and, you know, almost some of the light bulb moments. I was talking actually to Tommy Paul and Francis after Tommy played, um, Alcaraz at, um, at Miami. And he was just like, man, the guy's so good. He's doing this, he's doing that. And then he just said one thing that kind of clicked in my head. He's like, man, you leave one ball just like a little bit in the middle and boom, he's on it with a forehand and he's ripping. I said, wait a second. What'd you say? I said, you know, you and Francis, I've talked to both of you at some point, like you guys both have the best legs. Like you guys move so well, like use it for offense. Like, that's what I've told you guys playing. He's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, what? And then he kind of caught himself like, I've been telling you that like, like Carlos does like, that's what I learned. Like I, I could move really well when I was on tour. I relate to both you guys. Like, and one of the best things I learned when I was young was that instead of just using it to back up and play defense and just scramble, Hey, if I can use that, that my legs, my aggression to be aggressive, it's going to be, it's going to end up making me run less because I'm going to win this match four and four instead of losing it six in the third. So let me use my, let me use my legs to be aggressive. And like, that's what Carlos just did. There's a reason he's number one or number two in the world is because he's using, he's using his legs the right way. And he has to play defense sometimes, but if you yeah. can take that center ball that you leave a little bit short and you'd be aggressive with that, you're going to end the point really quickly and you're going to frustrate guys like you. So, and both of them are like, yeah, yeah, we know we've heard, <laughs> we've heard you, but I hope it sinks. You know, eventually you say it enough times and it will sink in. You, you and Tommy Robredo were big on uh, getting around the backhand, hitting that forehand, <laughs> quick footwork around, flip the hips, get around the ball. Yeah, um, yeah. No, but it does seem like you talked about Alcaraz in the center. It's like, I, I, in my opinion, I grew up in the greatest era of all time. I mean, with you, Roddick, Roger, Rafa, Novak, all these, I mean, Delpo, uh, Gael, Sanga, all these legends. But it's like, it almost seems like just with technology and just the, the training that goes in, are these guys, are their swing speed off the ground? Is it bigger than what you guys were hitting? I think it's a little bigger. I've talked to actually, you know, Darren Cahill is um, a colleague of mine at ESPN and now he works with center and I've talked to him about that. And I always say like, look, I'm never going to be one of those commentators that says, Oh, back in my day, we would have beaten all these guys. I don't want to be that crusty old guy that says that. Cause I'm like, the game keeps getting better. You know, these guys are just better um, than we were. And he actually, he pushed back a little. He's like, 
you know, they might be better, but it's not as much as you think. He's like, if you and Andy, like in your prime, you go, you guys go back, you guys were hitting big like them. Like you may not think it, you may not realize it because you're, you know, you're out of the game for a while, but he's like, I've watched you guys. I've watched, um, I've watched Andre. He's worked with Andre for so long. He's like, and now I watch these guys and yeah, they're hitting it big, but you guys were too. So it's not, it hasn't, he's saying, I think it's changed quite a bit. He's saying it's only changed uh, a little bit, but it's, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, we're both um, in agreement that it's gotten, it's gotten better. The game keeps getting better. Um, but he's saying the shift is a little more gradual. I think it's, I think it's incredible. The, the thing for me is like, we had guys, I agree that hit big. We had guys that moved really well, but we didn't have guys like Alcaraz that hit big and moved well until Roger. And Roger was the the unicorn at the time. Then Rafa came along, then Novak came along. And now you're seeing more and more guys that can hit big and move really well. And that's becoming more of the trend. And now I feel like if you're in the top 100, you almost, it's it's a prerequisite. You have to move well. You can't be there and be slow. It's just the guys hit too big that they would absolutely, um, you know, they, they would just, completely take advantage of the fact that you can't move and they're going to hit too many winners and it's going to be over too quickly. And so even, even the guys that supposedly don't move well, like Taylor Fritz, he still moves way better than you would think because he's six, five and he's long and he just gets the ball. He knows how to position himself the right way. So um, I think that it's just, I think it's gotten quite a bit better. Um, Darren thinks maybe just marginally, but I think it's gotten a lot better. It's like Charles Barkley when he says that, you know, the basketball is kind of it's like evolution. Just, things are just going to get better. But it's like yeah. in basketball, shooting is the ultimate equalizer. And I think in tennis, yeah. it's become the movement and the athleticism yeah. out of the corners uh, yeah. for me. But um, no, I mean, you, you take any of the, like, the, as far as the serve goes, I mean, in the forehands, like your forehand, Delpo's forehand, Roddick serve, all those things are as big as they are now. But it's just like when you combine all these things, it's like, yeah. man. And for me, it's off the, the ground strokes is where I see like the, the velocity seems to be out of this world. I mean, it's, center, it's just constantly just pelting the ball into the corners. And it's I incredible. think the strategy has changed a little bit now, too. And I, I feel like it was <laughs> I, I sometimes think I was born in the wrong generation because, I, well, I think of it um, in, in plenty of different ways. But one being nowadays, I feel like everyone stands right on that baseline and rips. And that's the goal is like, hey, I can take time away. And that's what I was saying and doing from early on in my career that I had to do. And I was getting criticized nonstop. I always got to, you know, stop confronting the balance. You got to move back. You got to play safer. You got to play a little less aggressive. You got to get the ball in the court. No one does that anymore. People are ripping from point one right away. And I think they've realized like, hey, taking time away has a lot of value. Um, And we're hitting the ball so well. The technology is so good that we're not worried about with a wooden racket that we're not going to be able to make perfect contact. We're still hitting the ball great. So I think that's changed. And I would I feel like I would be a lot more in line with most of the way players are playing now than I was then when I was taking time. So maybe it's better that I was there because I was one of the only ones that was doing it. And now I'd be one of the herd. Maybe I wouldn't have had as much success. I don't know. But it'd be fun for me to see. Um, Yeah. But I do think it's changed that that's that's I talk to a lot of coaches now and many of them are preaching, hey, first strike tennis. Let's get up and get get in the court, get inside the court, inside the baseline is better. And I feel like when I was playing, they were telling me, oh, no, 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 you need to back up. Luckily, I had a coach that was not saying that, but all the commentators and criti- critics were saying, well, you got to back up more. You got you need to use your legs for defense. And I was like, no, that, that, that wasn't <laughs> me. That wasn't my, my skill set. And that wasn't the way I thought was my best tennis. So um, I like seeing the fact that the, the strategy has shifted quite a bit and people are playing. And I think that's why it's better tennis. No, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, but it's just incredible to see, like, even a guy like Sasha Zverev, who's, who has ridiculous court coverage, it's like, if he doesn't lay his shoulders into the ball, like, he's, even guys like him will get 
exposed. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, man, I really appreciate the time. I got to finish up with a couple, couple. Uh, give me a prediction on Roland Garros this year. That's where we got. I mean, we're in Monte Carlo. It's a lot of fun right now, but we got to go right to the big leagues. Give me All the right. Roland Garros prediction this year. So I said this about three years ago that until Rafa decides to change something, he's my pick. So <laughs> I will not be I will not be burned by him coming back and be like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be healthy. I don't know what I'm going to play. He's my favorite until until further notice. Rafa is still a favorite, and I have no idea how healthy he is, how uh, his foot is. That could change once we get to the French Open. We see like the first round, he is still hobbling, but if he's healthy, he's still my pick. That's awesome. So last question. Give me right now, if you go out there and play a match, what do you think your UTR would be? <laughs> oh man, I don't know. What's um I'm I'm terrible at knowing this. Like the top guys are like 15s or 16s, right? Yeah, Novak's the top dog. I think he's like 16-1 or 16-2. And you got like, okay. you know, your your good division one player is like a 12-5. Ohio okay. State's I, I, yeah, I'm, I can still so I have hit with some of those Harvard kids and I hit with Hudson, so I, I can I can safely say I'm over. I'm, I'm. I can get. I can still hang with the with the top college players. So I'm. A, I'm a 12-5 or 13. I think. Hell yeah! Let's go. <laughs> That's big time. Yeah. All right. Well, James, appreciate all the time that you gave us today. And yeah. if you ever need out, I mean, I'm sure you you got your plugs. But if you ever need anything tennis related, gear, strings, equipment, anything you need, let us know. We'll help you out at Tennis Point. Um, been been a fan of you since I was a young kid, and it's been awesome to get to know you a little bit now. And watch you do your thing at the Miami Open and can't wait to see you again. And on the sunshine double next year, we uh, had a ton of fun doing this though. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Nate. I appreciate it. I'll be hitting you up for my, my daughter's starting to play tennis. So those, those tennis shoes are starting to get expensive. I'll be hitting you up. <laughs> let, let me know, my man. We got you. We got you covered. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, James. Thanks for coming on the Pure Tennis Podcast, man. All right. Take care. Have a good one.